not seen your tattoo yet. No, it's there. It's on my left arm. Magnificent. Why, why left? Not sure. Uh, just seemed seemed appropriate. I think you looked at your left <laughs> wrist more than you, you looked at your right right wrist. But is, I is haven't. Is that a rule? I haven't done any sort of in depth research on it. Uh, they've shaved your arm though. They have, uh, which is partly why it still itches a bit, and it stabs over, uh, and it's the stab has mainly dropped off now. Um, but I, I quite like I quite like it both aesthetically, but most more importantly, I quite like it. Should I describe it? Yes, you should. Business? So it's the the Ouroboros, the eternity symbol. Uh, with my brother's initials in one corner and then three birds and Stephen you will notice the the artistic touch uh, my brother loved birds loved bird watching as a kid uh, volunteered for the RSPB at Malham in Yorkshire as a oh Malham as a, Cove as a student which actually I didn't know about him until I started re- researching his eulogy um, but one of the birds is flying away ah uh, and doesn't follow the line of the Ouroboros and the Ouroboros ah. this is a really in, this is a really kind of um, nerdy thing there's a line in red dwarf which both me and my brother loved where one of the characters is left as a baby in a box with the Ouroboros symbol yeah. which is the sort of sideways eight greek eternity symbol um and its name is the Ouroboros, and it's on the box was the, the symbol and then the word Ouroboros. and in one of the episodes someone explains to him that it's called the Ouroboros. The symbol is known as the Ouroboros. And he says, ah, that explains it. I thought his, my birth parents didn't know what to call me, so they put me in a box and wrote down our Rob or Ross, <laughs> which was a joke but that both me and my brother, who was obviously called Rob, enjoyed. So there's lots of different... There's, there's, sim, there's symbolism. But I'm now thinking of getting another one. I quite enjoy getting into two, so I might get another one. <laughs> You're hooked already. Yeah. You should speak to Chinch about the... Um the endorphins that flow through you inappropriately. Don't get, don't get Springsteen lyrics though. No. Well, you're gonna what? It's gonna be Hugh. Hugh, just just say Stephen Hugh Stephen Chinch, Chinch down my um, thigh. Why is Hugh first? <laughs> uh, just uh, self obsessed. I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. Uh, it's not even alphabetically. I correct, might. That, I might. It? I might get just Chinch's face <laughs> on your back. On my back. The just a massive Chinch face. The, you know, it was. Inter- I, I was quite frightened. My sister went first. My sister has the same one. Uh, she went first and she was really worried and a bit panicky. And You let your sister go first? She, she, she wanted to go first, Stephen. Um, and Are you Bo- sure? Booney, Rob's girlfriend, came for moral support. And Rachel was like, oh my God, this is going to be awful. I'm going to be awful. This is going to be awful. I'm gonna, I'm gonna fa- what if I faint? What if I faint? And we just kept saying, well, look, Rob went through worse. So whatever we have to put up with doesn't matter. And, uh, and then Rachel just talked throughout. <laughs> she just talked for 45 minutes straight as she had this done in her arm. And I thought, well, if she can get through it, then it must be really fine. And it isn't. It does hurt a bit. And there's, if you do it on the bits that are on the kind of the lower side of my wrist, the underside of my wrist hurt quite a lot. Just that skin's quite delicate. Um, but the, uh, but I thought, well, I can't show any weakness because my sister was literally chatting through hers. So I talked to my to two artists, Colette, I'd recommend her, at Snake and Tiger in Leeds, uh, about the Antiques Roadshow. And uh, what, uh, mutual uh, affection for Fiona Bruce? I mean, I think we all have a lot of affection for Fiona Bruce. Uh, no, on the, the Sunday night, it had been on TV. I don't watch the Antiques Roadshow regularly. Um, but they'd had a, what, an Edison pen on it, which was the, the kind of multi-use pen that Thomas Edison invented. To Nothing t- to do with the Manchester City goalkeeper? No, not that one. <laughs> I mean, one. He's, he's not busy during a lot of games, but the, I'd be surprised the, to discover he had a pen on him. The Edison pen. Right. Okay. Um, this is the Edison pen. Um <laughs> Which he invented kind to write lots of letters at the same time. So I think it sort of imprinted on the paper and then it, he filled it with ink and it, meant it went through lots of sheets so he could mail merge effectively. Um, but that was the first pen that was adapted by two artists to do tattoos. Just before that, you did it with like a needle and a rock. 
which is probably not, not a tribute I would have done to my brother. I would have come up with a different idea if it involved a needle and a rock. Uh, this is Set Piece Benny, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. Joining me, Hugh Ferris, are Stephen Wyeth, who is mildly proud of the Set Piece Menu audience, and Rory Smith, who is very proud of the Set Piece Menu audience. Um, Andy Hinchcliffe is in Portugal, uh, so that his tan is topped up for the live show. He has deposited a soccer story, so we will hear from him later. Uh, Rory, uh, welcome back. Thank you. It's, um, it's nice to be back. The, the, uh, the, there is a gift for you, and it comes in the form of the food for today's podcast. Excellent. Uh, which has been uh, lying dormant for your return, uh, because frankly, your response to my uh, is it goods, this? goods bought from Duty Free is mildly more amusing than everybody else's distaste. Um, so these are, you've heard of Turkish Delight. I have. These are Cretan Delights. Right. Exactly the same, just different airport. Excellent. Um, so we are going to tuck into some flowery uh, Cretan sweets. As the morning progresses. I'm glad Chinch isn't here. I think he might have been slightly incredulous that this was the food offering. Yeah. He would want to know where the bacon sandwich was. Yes. We will take a picture of it and you can make up your own mind. But um, Rory, you must be um, delighted to be back. I am. It's really odd. I, I am, oh, it's, it's obviously lovely to see you both. Thank it's you. It's always lovely That's to see you That's the first thing you should say. I do regularly see Steve now on a Saturday morning. Uh, so, when, it, so it transpires. Yes, we... We are on football duty. We, we have... We take our children to football and it sort of like intersects our yeah. journeys home, intersect. At A Taste of Honey, the West Didsbury Delicatessen, which sells the world's greatest food stuff. Yes, Rory has time to stop and enjoy that. Yes. I'm, I'm flying between Saturday morning football appointments. I would recommend their cheese bagels. They are heavenly. But no, it's, it is nice. It's, it's kind of nice to... It's small steps with everything. So one of the things that's really, that's really become clear in the last few weeks is how many people have... It's maybe something you don't really think about when you're in your 30s, if you've never been through something like this, but uh, we've obviously all lost grandparents and stuff, but the number of people who've who've been through something maybe more harrowing than losing an elderly grandparent, where you can kind of tell yourself it was their time and and that it might have been a relief for them to go and they're in a better place now and all, all that stuff that we tell ourselves to, to feel better. A lot of people have been through things uh, that my family's going through at the moment and it's it's been really nice to hear their experiences and to have their support uh, I think that there comes a point where you kind of want to see if you, you want to kind of test the water and see if you can cope with actual life rather than just being in this sort of protective cocoon of of your family um, and your toddler and you, it's very hard to grieve around a toddler because they really don't they don't know and you have to be happy which has really helped so Ed has been a tremendous support to all of us although he doesn't know it um, he's also discovered how to say poo poo and nap nap which is which has really kind of brought a little bit of sunshine into our lives. Although he's lying about it. Anyway, that's a different story. Um, but the it's good to be back, and it also feels right to be back because uh, we have, we being, me and my family, been utterly overwhelmed by the kindness and the generosity and the thoughtfulness of the set-piece menu audience. Staggered, I think, is probably an apt word, and it's been a real sort of source of support through, yeah, the, the long weeks where we were kind of waiting to find out what, what had happened to Rob and kind of why he died. And then we had last week the funeral and then the cremation, which is not an, an experience I would recommend for anyone. Um, but I thought, it, it, rather than me whining on about it, <laughs> I thought it might be better to um, to have somebody else say thank you to everybody just to prove that it's not just me that it's meant a lot to. So I spoke to my sister about it and uh, this is what happened. Hello. Hello. Can you identify yourself for our listeners, please? Yes, I can. I'm Rachel, Rory's sister. 
Uh, thank you for joining us on the show. You are, of course, a frequent listener to the show. How many times have you listened? Uh, I have listened, um, if I have to be completely honest, once. Yeah. Did you enjoy it? I, I thought it was very, it was brilliant. It was very well said. Um, would you vote for us in a some sort of podcast award if such a thing existed? Of course I would. There you go. Um, I actually would have done that without having listened to it. That's not, that's, I mean, that's, that's why democracy has become such a joke. Um... Can you tell our listeners, because they will, they will be concerned about this, Rachel, uh, how many toilets you own? I, 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 I'm very touched that everyone's very concer- so concerned about this. Um, I own one toilet, but this is actually quite a novelty, because as you know, until um, up until relatively recently, I didn't own one. Um, and I have to tell you, it's actually a bit overrated. You know, cheap rent, no toilet was actually pretty good. Not for the people who are dealing with it downstairs. Um, but you're here for a serious reason. Uh, our lightheartedness should probably be taken as the madness of grief. Uh, we, as listeners know, lost our brother Rob uh, about a month ago, uh, very suddenly and very sadly. Uh, and you have taken time off work and you are still in England, where does you're normally in Paris. Um, but there's been kind of a couple of rays of light uh, and I thought it might be nice, instead of me thanking the set-piece menu community for their incredible generosity, if you could maybe uh, describe kind of what it's meant to us as a family. Yeah, so it's just, it's it's been actually quite overwhelming. Um, so we, as, as Rory explained to you, we, we've set up this fund in Aid of the Woodland Trust really because... Basically, we feel that we we want to and we need to take action in in Rob's name because he was he was planning on, on on getting involved in a cause that he really cared very deeply about, which is the environment. So he was. I was going to say he he'd become the last few years really environmentally conscious to the extent that he had stopped eating beef. Do you remember his criteria on which he would eat beef? He would basically eat beef if somebody else had cooked it for him because he didn't want to waste it. And because he was worried that going to someone's house for dinner and then being like, I can't eat what you've cooked me for dinner made him a (laughs) and he didn't want to be a which I think is the best way to have a principle is that you will hold to it until the point that people might think you're a when you have to stop doing it. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Anyway, I interrupted, sorry. That's that's all right. Um... Well, we does that quite often. Um, just on an aside. Um, so, yeah, so basically he he was actually planning on sort of doing volunteer work and donating to charity um, when, he, when he moved back to the UK, which was his plan next year. So we really feel that in his memory, we want to take action on his behalf. And I personally feel that one of the big tragedies of his death is that he, he really would have had an impact on society. He was somebody who would have made a difference, he would have really tried to make a difference, and that by doing this, we're, we're, we're doing that in his name, and that for us is really important at this most horrendous time. Um, and we have, so we, kind of, Booney, Rob's girlfriend, set it up initially, and we had a a good reaction from, from friends, and that people we, we from people who we, we know as a family, and Rob's friends as well. Uh, and then I came on the podcast and Steve and Hugh and Chintry kindly allowed me to make a sort of weird cameo and depress people uh, with our tragedy uh, there's nothing like a tragedy shared um, and the response was yeah, like Rachel says, properly overwhelming it was, it, we are all taken aback by quite how kind and thoughtful 
and generous people have been and it's not you know it's not just the money it's the messages that really get you that to think that people can kind of you know who we've never met can be affected by by something that's happened to someone they didn't know and that's it's really nice and that's the first thing but it's also uh quite yeah quite um kind of gives you power in in a moment where you feel like you've had all your the power sapped from your body to think it kind of reinforces, it strengthens you. Yeah, so I, I, would, I just really like to say a, a huge thank you to all of you who've donated. Um, there was also some really nice messages that you put alongside your donations. And like Roy says, this actually has given us power. We've spoken to the Woodland Trust who have have got a team that's sort of looking to see what we can do with, with the money that we've raised because we've really raised a, quite a significant amount of money so far and it's still growing. Um, so we hope to be able to do something maybe even bigger than we'd initially thought. And this is something that's going to to really have a, an impact on everybody because the more woodland that we can protect, the more that that really has an impact on society and on, on the country. So, yeah, just a really, really huge thank you at this incredibly dark time it it means so much to to have support from from all of you and um and i might start listening to the podcast more often things aren't that bad right the um the the next target now that we've kind of passed the initial one is that i want an area of land big enough for my brother that i can rewild with wolves and bears so um so please give generously and thank you very much wolves and bears in yorkshire yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the, the seeking the, to repatriate them. Well, I, mean, I don't <laughs> know whether Yorkshire, Yorkshire traditionally had wolves and bears, but I feel like it would be improved by it, and it, particularly because it's. I think the woodland is in the Nid Gorge, which is near Knaresborough, which is kind of North Yorkshire. There's nothing else in North Yorkshire. You might as well have, might as well have some wolves and bears. So I think Rob, that's what Rob would have wanted. Can't he just set some domestic cats free and then spread some rumour via the tabloids? What's it to grow? We've got his cat back. One of the big concerns there you go, was, solution. Um, was Emilio, the street cat that he adopted, um, who was a, like, quite a nice person, but vicious. And Emilio had to have a big road trip from Lisbon to beat the, the no-deal de- no deal deadline. <laughs> because his passport would have been invalid had we left the EU on October the 31st. Now, as it turns out, we're never leaving the EU, and, and Brexit's not going to happen. And that's what Rob would have wanted. Sorry, lads. <laughs> and and Emilio- that's what Rob would have wanted. And so Emilio can roam the continent to his heart's content. Then. Emilio is currently... So he's, he's at, my, at Booney's parents' house. Who, they've got these two kind of very kind of quite snobby cats that live there already and then like this sort of this Portuguese street tough has arrived and I kind of imagine Emilio kind of like mugging them in the corridors or or like getting them to invest in like some weird pyramid scheme that robs them of all their money or selling them drugs and he it just feels odd that there's this kind of Portuguese street cat who's had this really tough life um living in North Yorkshire in, in the countryside with these these two kind of country squires i like the imagery of it there is a coming of age story to be written about i think there is there cats. is yeah there's it's going to be they're the original odd treble um but getting emilio back was really important as well so we could maybe release emilio or his his progeny it's a solution there yeah just accept it and just see Embrace what happens yeah. like mountain lions that'd be amazing <laughs> we thank rachel yes. for her contribution um uh, and no doubt uh, all the emails and everything that have been come via us as well you'll, you'll, yes, you'll appreciate yes the emails were amazing um, well getting in touch with the podcast is very easy you can uh, get us on twitter at setpiecemenu setpiecemenu at gmail.com also find us on facebook one of those emails just just one for today because you've seen personally pretty much every other yeah. one but I wanted I held this one back because I wanted you to uh, 
better here. It's from Adam Daunt, who's emailed us from Australia. Hey, Hugh and others. So immediately top of the pile. I normally don't really want to write into a podcast because it seems incredibly indulgent. Don't say that. We rely on it. But in light of Rory's news, I felt like I should drop you a line. Also because Rory's DMs are entirely inaccessible on account of his worldwide fame. When I was like 13 and couldn't convince mum or dad to get pay TV so I could watch football, I resorted to YouTube, which is where I found Life's a Pitch by BT, amongst other things. They would talk about European football and it all sounded really exciting and quite exotic. It amazed me that anyone could pronounce Henrik Mkhitaryan's name. Anyone on here, I found Rory Smith, and at first thought he was really odd. He looked like a crossover between Justin Bieber and a hipster seen in a poor socio-economic area building orphanages to try and find himself. <laughs> this is in stark contrast to most, most other journalists, presumably around Chinch's age, who look... Chinch's age, who looked as if they'd been around since biblical times and could keel over at any second. So anyway, impressed by his enlightened views, or my considerable lack of knowledge, says Adam, I started reading his work at the Times, followed by wherever he ended up after that. We all know how eloquent he is, but it was the first time it clicked in my head that sports writing could show us something greater than a match report and make you feel something and humanise the superstars. Or make you feel smug, because Australian journalists rarely ventured out of two-syllable words. I'm about to graduate from my bachelor's degree in journalism in little old Adelaide and I just wanted to thank Rory for inspiring me to want to write about sports. He's influenced my style greatly and remains my favourite sports writer. He is akin to Juan Roman Riquelme in my world. A journalistic hero. I know you're going through a tough time right now Rory but thanks for being such an inspiration and I look forward to seeing what you do going forward. It'll make the rest of us look incredibly bad at our jobs I am sure. Keep up the great work Rory and the squad from Adam. That's, um, I mean, massively misguided, <laughs> but, but very, very, very nice. And yeah, that is, it's not something I ever really think about, whether you have an influence. I would, I would really hope I don't have an influence on people. It's, I don't want to burst any bubbles. It's just, just start with the anecdote and then write down the rest of it. It's not, I really shouldn't be offering people inspiration. But it's, there's been lots of really nice emails. There's been lots of, I've had lots of nice messages on Twitter and on Facebook and stuff. From There was one message that really touched me to our Facebook page. Um... That I need to reply to actually. There's a lot of correspondence. A lot yes. of correspondence. Lots of letter writing from now on. A lot of cake. Oh, really? In really? death, yeah. A lot and of cake. Crete and sweets. I mean, that's, my standards are much higher. I've had we've, a lot of homemade courgette and lime cake recently. We've been keeping a respectful distance from your house, but you really should, cake. You, sh you should have come for the cake. <sighs> the, um, it's when you don't drink, people just give you cake. It's amazing. I mean, I don't, uh, yeah, it's not. It, I wouldn't, ideally, I wouldn't have had access to that cake, but it's. It's definitely a kind of side boon, I would say. It's hard not to hard not to be grateful for cake at any point. Um, but no, there've been loads of really nice messages, and it sounds really sort of cheesy. But for people to be the, when people are nice, to you, I think I said it before. When people are nice to you, you think that's nice, and for a few seconds, you don't think about why they're being nice. And those few seconds are really precious. So thank you to everyone who's not just donated to the Wooden Trust, um, but who's sent messages or got in touch. It's, it, does, it, it means the world. Uh, we have other items of correspondence Good. you'll be pleased to know. Uh, next is Matt Lishman, who has very much been paying attention to how best to open an email to the pod. Hi, chaps, he says. This is not the first time I've written, but I wish to reiterate how much I enjoy the podcast. The way you guys peel back the surface-level stuff to expose football as a reflection of culture and community is always enlightening and, to be honest, a ruddy good crack. Uh, my sincere condolences, he says, to Rory, whose difficult difficulties at present are unimaginable. A brilliant writer 
he says. And if the pod is anything to go by, a brilliant bloke. So again, massively misguided. I would say I'm okay at best. I listened to your most recent discussion regarding unwavering support. With a pang of anxiety as I waited for you to touch upon the matter of protest, specifically by non-attendance, a subject which is pertinent to me as a Newcastle fan in 2019. I was a bit surprised that the conversation never ventured into those waters, so I wondered if you might muse upon it briefly now. With St. James's Park currently ranking lowest in the Premier League for percentage of home seats filled, Daniel Storey recently wrote for inews.co.uk that each empty seat reflects a supporter who grew tired of having the piss taken out of them, only asking for something tangible to believe in and to watch their club as it at least attempts to move in the right direction. When Mike Ashley replaced the highly decorated and influential Rafa Benitez with Steve Bruce, it was viewed by thousands of supporters as the final proof that the club doesn't care about being successful. Many who have turned their back on the club have done so because they do not believe it is trying to succeed, therefore contradicting the very purpose of a sporting institution. They do not feel that the club deserves support, meanwhile believing that an empty stadium is more likely to force an ownership change than a full one. In contrast, many who still attend see those absentees as good-for-nothings who are better off gone as the club battles to stay in the Premier League. From noble sacrifice to feckless betrayal, where on the supporter spectrum does the pod see fans who use their absence as a means of protest? Matt Lishman. I don't envy Newcastle fans this one. It must be a really conflicting situation to deal with because you can see it from both sides and I think it's one of those where whichever side of the fence you fall on as a supporter, you just have to respect the view of the other half, don't you? You cannot, if, you, if, you've, if you've chosen to keep going to St. James's Park regularly, then you are perfectly entitled to do that. And you certainly shouldn't be sneering at those who have had enough and decided that they simply aren't going to keep putting their hands in their pockets to, to fund the club that they don't feel is using that money wisely to, to strengthen the team and, and make the best decisions in terms of what happens on the pitch. It's interesting, isn't it, that the, the kind of ultimate act of fan loyalty is not going. In a way, it feels like if you make, you, you're making that sacrifice of your of the thing that you you know this thing that you love and that is is a kind of fixture of your week, your your fortnight. That by sacrificing that, you are in some way kind of displaying your 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 true high, like higher loyalty almost to the team. Um, I think it's. I kind of prefer that to the booing. I prefer that to turning against your team. I don't. I don't think certainly in a case like Newcastle, it's not the team's fault that the club is where it is. That you, there's no reason to take that out on the players. And if you can't, if you feel that the the best thing you can do for your club in the long term is to make your displeasure felt by not being there. And I think visual protests are really important. Because the problem is if you, if you give up your season ticket, someone else will take it. And if someone else doesn't take it, you'll find someone who'll come to that, to each individual game. Most games will be sold out. They're massive events. So I think you, you almost have to accept that you, you can't hurt the club financially, not really. But what you can do is you can hurt the club visually and because the Premier League is such a visual spectacle, football in general is such a visual spectacle, that isn't an, that isn't an ineffective way of doing it. Making the stadium be empty has a power. And I yeah, to me, it's a, it's a valid form of... of pro, it's, kind of the, it's the last resort, but it's a valid form of protest. But obviously so much of a club's income comes from things other than bums yeah, on course, seats yeah. that, as you say, it, it isn't necessary. It, it, visually, it might be impressive, but it's not going to damage Mike Ashley financially all that much if... You know, there's a few hundred, a, no. a couple of thousand empty seats. There, there was one good case study I saw of this and it really sort of sums up the, the, the confliction that a lot of fans will be feeling. So a father, someone of our age, mm. whose son has just got to the stage in life where he wants to take him regularly to watch his club, to watch Newcastle. The dad, 
would rather not be going. He was he would fall on the side of thinking, you know what, I'm not going to pay to watch Newcastle play whilst this particular ownership structure is in place. But my son is at the age where he is keen to yeah. go and these are his formative years as a football fan and I don't want to deny him yeah. that rite of passage. So that that is a good demonstration of of the kind of decision that individual fans have had to make. Yeah, um, we we had a lot of emails uh, over the last week about VAR as a result of Stephen's latest episode in his feature. Um, make it sound like a meltdown. Well, um, a lot of the emails are a meltdown. Let's be honest about it. But uh, because of that, we don't actually have uh, time to deal with them now. We will uh, seek to find an opportunity uh, to have that discussion uh, a little bit later on. But as I'm sure you can understand, we had other matters to attend to uh, today. If you would like to further the conversation, which is yet to take place about VAR, uh, setpiecemenu at gmail.com, at setpiecemenu on Twitter, or you can find us on Facebook um, as well. We do, however, have time for a very short plug of our live show, because yes. these things matter greatly. Uh, it's just a week now until our live show, which means our ticket reminders have now become desperate reminders, bordering on begging. The Set Piece Many 100th episode spectacular is taking place at the th on the 13th of November at the Anthony Burgess Foundation in Manchester. Our show is part of the Manchester Podcast Festival, which is already up and running, I would imagine, to great success and acclaim. And tickets are available from their website. Head to manchesterpodcastfestival.com. Click on our faces. They are just a £10 plus a booking fee, and you'll be able to see all of us in our splendour and our glory. And if, you know, it gets to the point where we've not really entertained people enough, we might have a conversation about VAR. So uh, at least we'll be able to scratch that itch at some point yeah, during that. There will be a Q&A opportunity, I'm sure. So if anybody wants to take me to task on VAR, you can do it in person. And I can tell you, there will be a solicitor in the house. <laughs> so if things start tipping towards the risque, and I know that we've got Chinch's uh, after hours soccer story to come, at yeah. least we've, we, we're covered. Chinch after dark. You'd want to come for that, surely. Chinch after dark, we're going to have to turn the lights out so there's no proof it was actually him telling the story. Uh, for legal reasons. Do you think we should disguise his voice? <laughs> like they used to do with Sinn Féin. Let's make him sound like Darth Vader. For the no, I was thinking, I think I was thinking of going higher oh, rather hi than lower. In, in, in hail helium yes. to undermine his story even yeah. further. Excellent. Okay, uh, I'll just put that on the list. Add helium. Uh, now we are just past the quarter point of the Premier League season. And if your guesses on how the table uh, were to finish are any pointer to us, there's enough that's happened so far to raise the odd eyebrow. Yes, I've had a deep dive into the SPM PL, 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 PL stats. And while sixth place Sheffield United were overwhelmingly predicted to finish bottom and literally nobody thought Manchester United would end up in their current position of 10th, if you uh, look to that much debated area of who might be the best of the rest in seventh, two teams were statistically considered much more likely than the others, Leicester and Everton. Since that predictive pre-season picture, though, the two teams have parted ways. Leicester sit third and have been second, while Everton are only one place above the relegation zone in 17th. One thing, though, still connects them, and this is the subject of this week's pod. This is about playing in blue. Do we have to admit that playing in blue is interesting? <laughs> we could stretch that out to an hour, though. We could do that. We've already done 25 minutes without even starting, so yes. Do we have to admit we have wrongly evaluated a manager or two? There was a train of thought that Leicester perhaps wasn't the most suitable place for Brendan Rodgers to land after a wildly successful stint at Celtic Park, whether that was based on the reputation of Scottish football itself or maybe uh, because the almost treble treble with Celtic might have increased Rodgers' opinion of himself a little more than what others thought of him. On the other hand, Marco Silva, who is decidedly not the now-out-of-work Gary Rowett, whilst 
unheralded by Paul Merson, was the hipster's choice for a while, albeit at non-hipstery clubs, until a much more heralded move to Everton, a club befitting his talents, they said, and a bit of a budget hike as well. So, cynicism about one, high hopes for the other, but their fortunes have diverged since. Is it time for us and others to admit we got it wrong? Which preconceptions have been confounded? Which managers have we incorrectly evaluated? It is time for something of a confessional. Should we get the, the elephant in the room out of the way first? Please about do. British managers. Allardyce has been on about this again yeah, this morning I as we record. I really wish he'd stop <laughs> because it's annoying. I actually feel quite sorry for Sam Allardyce because there, there was... And it's something actually that, I'm, I, that although it's not he's my friend, but I, I, I think if I was advising Sean Dyche, I'd, I'd maybe make him aware of as well. I'm not advising Sean Dyche. Allardyce was a really progressive manager in certain ways. And he had a choice throughout his career about whether to highlight that bit or whether to kind of go down the kind of slightly more gammony route of shouting about how much foreigners shouldn't be given credit. And he made... A specific choice and I think in in hindsight that wasn't a wise choice and I think with Deitch I'm really conscious that Deitch is quite a, is a clever manager a lot of the praise that Chris Wilder's getting this season you could, you could probably make of Deitch as well that he does quite smart things and and he, he he is in many ways quite not cutting edge necessarily but he is very modern in a lot of ways but he seems to think that he has to play up the old-fashioned side for a reason that I've got to I'm not entirely clear on and I think that impact how he's judged not just by fans which is important but probably more important to him is kind of by other clubs and other executives and his standing in the game that he quite often seems like a a, a relatively young man harking back to another era rather than someone who is of a similar generation to to Guardiola and and Rodgers and kind of much more and Eddie Howe and people who are considered much more progressive but this thing about British managers that the big stereotype is that we're, we're mean about Brendan Rodgers because he's British and we love Marco Silva because he's foreign and he's got dark hair and he's, he speaks lots of languages and stuff, is nonsense. It's just, it's, it's, an, it's, it's such a lazy way, way of looking at the issue because British managers get far more praise far more quickly than anybody else. They might then be judged more harshly at the highest level if they are... If they, if they don't succeed, there might be more doubts about them. But those doubts about them often aren't that they're British. It's that they've come from smaller clubs and they've been given much bigger jobs and so therefore they struggle. It's experience, not nationality. Yeah. And, and the general populace knows more about them. Yes. They're more aware of where they've come from, yeah. what they've done in the past, and they are more likely to have an opportunity to use that as a stick to beat them with. Exactly. If you're Marco Silva, you come into to Hull and, and then Watford and your background is Olympiacos and Sporting Lisbon and... and Estoril, I think yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. Um, then, yeah, the vast majority of people won't know a huge amount about you. So they will probably take you as they find you, basically. They might do a bit of research and and say, well, he did this at Olympiacos, and he did this at Sporting. There will be people on Twitter who will say, well, actually, I watched his Estoril side week in, week out. And they were the really... second we- tier of Portuguese football, Really yeah. weak Redly on the left-hand side. And Paul Merson didn't even watch Gary Rowlett enough to know exactly. what his name was, so... Um. But, but Steve's quite right that if you're coming from even lower league football, you're much more familiar. You've probably, people might have seen, seen, seen a few games. They will know your background as a, certainly as a coach, probably as a player. They will have preconceived ideas about you. So the familiarity doesn't necessarily help in some ways, but in others it probably really does. It probably means you've got a, 
a certain support base of people who think he's done a good job. I know he's done a good job at Burton. I know he's done a good help, job. Because they've helped those fans. Yeah, they will remember the game that you were on. You've got the, you've not got the job because your team was getting beaten week in week out. Whichever job you've got, you've got the job because you were doing quite well. So there was probably there's probably a bit of of kind of momentum behind you for 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 you to get whichever job it is and. You might have been on TV in an FA Cup game and that you, you might have given Manchester United a run for their money and people will remember you fondly from that. So this idea that fans have been... I was struck by how much Sam Allardyce seems to hate football fans, that they've been saying they've been brainwashed. What do you mean? These are in, these are intelligent people. Like, what are you on about? They've been brainwashed. He's brainwashing them. It just so happens that the, the lead you want to manage in, Sam is an international league that can attract the best talent from around the world and football is played in more than one country. So if teams are looking at the market that they can employ from, why on earth should they not go for the manager who's taken Sporting Lisbon to the title or whatever? No, not the title, it's Sporting Lisbon. Um, why, you know, why shouldn't they go for a guy who's got Genoa playing wonderful football? Well, you know, why do they have to think, well, we should look English first? It's this kind of weird Brexit mentality that, make, that makes no sense. You, you want access to the best players, so why on earth should fans not and teams not have access to the best managers? It's it is the biggest non sequitur, the biggest kind of false logic in football that British managers don't get. They're in some way sort of deprived of a fair chance. And Sam is letting himself be taken advantage of a little bit by coming on to say this stuff yes. on certain outlets, which encourage this clowning yeah this sort of debate he's effectively like some footballs- of which, which aren't based in britain which is interesting <laughs> yes exactly yeah, yeah yeah but he's like football's equivalent of the flat earther who's wheeled yeah, out yeah, on yeah. on talk radio to give this ex- ridiculous point of view which they can then use as a launch off yeah. point to to fuel their discussion and, and he stopples nigel farage kind of yeah yeah or anyone of that kind of ilk who who presents a as steve says like an extreme point of view so that basically because what what the, the outlets using him want is they want people to come and disagree with him they, they are to an extent mocking him aren't they yeah. it's the same as uh, the same, same radio station was talking the other day about how Dennis Bergkamp wasn't one of the top five Dutch players to have played in the Premier League it's like well, was he, that what that was about the Seth Fabregas thing well that, that's where yeah that yeah. was Seth Fabregas brought it up it's like well that, that's clearly nonsense that's clearly just something that's being said well, to drive debate you talk to a Pierre van Hooydonk and Glenn Helder and then Bogard would he be in there Bogard Vim Yonk Chinch's mate Vim Yonk yeah I mean Bergkamp probably sorry I stand corrected yeah Bergkamp probably sneaks in 6th or 7th so that I mean that's our problem with Dennis Bergkamp but what's our problem with Brendan Rodgers if it's not that he's British what what, what is the issue which is stopping us or at least until this point stopping us from thinking goodness me this guy is um, a, a an Ulster pep well so there's there's one thing that's kind of Rogers specific, which is the way he presents himself that's is exactly is problematic right. for him. That the teeth whitening, the tabloid stories about some relationships, but more than that, it's the way it's the way Brendan speaks, and it's the it's the kind of the, the Liam Neeson voice, the the kind of the gravelly philosophy, the kind of the sense that every every word that he utters is loaded with some sort of great wisdom. The that, documentary stuff when he first joined Liverpool, the envelopes and all that business didn't Yeah, help, I mean, the, the envelopes, I think, was, was taken from some other manager. Somebody else did that. that and it's a bit... Yeah, but they, did, they didn't do it on a documentary on TV. Not, yeah, in front of TV. And cameras. it's a bit naff. It's a bit of a naff kind of managerial jargon thing. The thing that did for him, actually, in that documentary was the portrait of himself in his house, which wasn't really fair because that was something that he'd been given as a gift from, a, a, I think, a, a stool that he did a lot of work with, with, with 
I forget exactly, but either underprivileged or, or children with, with special needs. Which is why I didn't mention it in my list of two things. Well, no, but it's, it's, <laughs> that is something that's held against him. And it's, it's that old thing of, you know, the, a lie goes around the world before the truth has got its boots on type thing. That That's actually quite an admirable... That's pro- that should be something that people say actually really nice that he's put that thing of himself. I mean, I'm not sure necessarily in that situation would I put that in my house. Would I'd, it be in I'd, a room that you wouldn't encourage a camera crew to go to? I'd keep it. Potentially. Obviously. And I'd, ch- I'd ch- cherish it. I maybe wouldn't... Ha- You've been to my house. There are very few pictures of me. Um, whoever they've been painted by. There's one, <laughs> there's one or two painted portraits and that's it. And they're and, both in the attic. <laughs> no, I mean, they're in the, in the attic when people come Along round. Along with your one of Dorian Gray. The, the exclusive digital photo frame which just rotates yeah, yeah. through just pictures from, from your life really covers my it life, all. Yeah. Close-ups on your face. There's like 80 of them <laughs> on the, permanent um, loop. Where, where funny enough, there is, there is an argument to be had an in, or at least an interesting discussion, I think, is do we respond better to that kind of... So you know that kind sort of mystic sort of philosophy that a lot of managers go in for now. Do we respond better to that when it's said with a foreign accent? I think that is a that there is a legitimate distortion to be had there, and, and that's where the word naff comes in. Because if you're talking about the envelope situation as appearing to be a bit naff, and whatever reasons that he has a uh, a portrait of himself, he could have chosen potentially to not have that in the background when he's he's yeah. he's being filmed. And so there are occasions where you could apply naff to Brendan Rogers unless you are winning and winning regularly and so the naff seems to dilute the more you are successful the foreign coaches that come in with the philosophy and the foreign accent and a little bit of mystique they have often they will have that success already it's something that we accept therefore the naff isn't necessarily part of that conversation i don't remember with brendan rogers any sense that he wasn't a suitable coach for Leicester. In fact, if anything, the complete opposite. There was quite a strong suggestion that was he underselling himself by leaving Celtic when there could have possibly been an Arsenal-type job coming along. I think the issue with Brendan Rodgers to Leicester was more to do with this perception of his character that, you know, there was an awful lot of people who, because of the way he conducts himself, would quite like to see him fall flat on his face for what you know whether that's right or wrong and that whether that was the kind of person that that Leicester needed because they looked like they might be an upwardly mobile club but they were not necessarily strong enough to deliver what they happened to have delivered since he took over. And the other major factor, of course, was that a lot of people were saying that the timing of it was odd because he was was on the verge of the treble treble with Celtic and it felt like he was leaving. One of the stories, as we record, that's going around is that Alex Neal might take the Stoke job rather than leave Preston, who is now second in the Championship. I think, having despite having said he definitely won't leave, there's still at least still. I think it's, I think he's still the booty's favourite. Right. Okay. Um, but it would seem odd for Alex Neal for anyone to leave the, the club that's top of the Championship or second top to to take over the club that's bottom of the Championship. And there was an element of that with Rogers and Leicester that it felt like you 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 are three months away from history. And this kind of place in legend, why are you why are you risking that to go to a mid-table team as Leicester were last season? Now, as it's panned out, that's probably quite a good decision because Celtic did the trouble trouble anyway. Nobody cares anymore, um, and Leicester it looks like as we as we record are certainly in with a shout of the Champions League, probably finishing third. And the, and the piece that you wrote in the uh, New York Times just a few days ago, mm. uh, as we speak today, talked about a structure which had reset itself successfully after. 
um, winning the league and having a, a, a group of players that left either willfully or were kindly pushed aside. Mm. Um, so should we give Brendan Rodgers the credit to be able to see that that was a system in which he would flourish and he didn't want that opportunity to pass him by because other situations might not have allowed him to flourish. So it's not just about the size of the club and the amount of spotlights and cameras on him it's an appreciation of where he would fit best and where he could do his best work yeah and the reason that he took it when he took it was because he wanted those few months to to, to assess the squad and work out what needed changing what what he could work with who the people who the people he would be working with were and I think he saw Leicester as as Steve says it looked like a, it looked straight away like a, like a decent fit in terms of manager who likes young players good young squad um and I think it, it's it's proved to be re- they'll they'll lose every game now for the rest of the season and get relegated. But it's proved to be a relatively to be a wise decision. It worked out. It worked out for Celtic just about. Celtic fans might might not agree with that. They might still understandably feel a bit betrayed. But they they got the trophies they wanted. Um, they got the treble treble. I suspect when they're taunting Rangers fans with the treble treble, they probably won't point out sort of asterisk. We had to change our manager at the last minute. Um, Leicester fans have got a manager who works with their squad. They they look they've continued that momentum and Rogers's reputation is kind of being rebuilt. So I think that the nationality thing is important in how we in how we respond as fans as British fans. And it'd be fascinating to know whether this applies to Premier League fans who aren't from Britain, whether they have the same prejudice. British people don't like what they perceive as pretension, and British people perceive lots of things as pretension. Talking about having read books is pretentious talking using words of more than two or three syllables in some lights is pretentious the british are not a a people who are very tolerant of anything that might suggest you might have some level of intelligence and they're certainly not tolerant of any anything that might suggest you're having yourself that's that's the ultimate earnestness is a real there's a brilliant line in um it's not an aa deal book it is might be lynn truss the, the 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 big crime the the thing you can't do in Britain is be earnest. We do not like the earnest, and Brendan Rodgers is very earnest, and that's a real problem for him. Whereas when Pep Guardiola is earnest, we think, oh, what a great what a great thinker, what a great thinker he is, what a what a wonderful what a wonderful kind of romantic man. Whereas when Brendan Rodgers does it, we sort of think, no, not no, come on, Brendan. So nationality, I think, is relevant in in terms of how we respond as fans. And media and stuff to managers, but I think the, what I think Steve has touched on the crucial thing with with where stereotypes of managers come from, and that's familiarity. I think that's the, that is the thing that matters absolutely most. It's it's knowledge of their track record. So the the, the ridiculous situation that you now have is that a lot of the people who sort of have decided that Brendan Rodgers is a, is a fraud or a myth, it's just he didn't win the title with a team that contained Colo Torre. <laughs> well, obviously. Colatore has won the title. <laughs> yeah, Colatore has. All right, that was slightly unfair. Because Brendan Rodgers failed failed in inverted commas at Liverpool. This is a Liverpool team that he got to second in the Premier League, which we, and it was not the Liverpool team that we After see being now. Seventh the previous season. Seventh is that the previous right? season. Also, it has to be said under Brendan Rodgers, and then was seventh <laughs> the season after that under Brendan Rodgers. Um, you, it would be. I think it's really harsh to describe Rodgers as a failure at Liverpool. He wasn't an. He wasn't an. Wasn't a success. And we've talked a lot about that kind of that, that like sort of monochrome dichotomy about you are either a success or you are a failure, and how kind of intellectually bankrupt it is. But I think with with Rodgers and with all managers who go to top six clubs, if you are perceived to not have been a success, which you will be perceived not to have been a success because you will eventually get sacked, whatever you do. 
for some reason, the rest of football then decides, well, that's your chance, John. You are now, of no, uh, you are now no longer of worth. And, I think and you will never get another one. You should never have another job, ever. You should just go and, do, go and be a farmer. That's all you can do. Just be a farmer. And I think that is the big thing with judging appointments like that, that we look at the, the backdrop too much and say it cannot work, when in fact most managerial appointments work not because the manager is of a certain level of talent or whatever, but it's because it's a good fit between the manager and the players. The other thing with that season that they finished second, Liverpool, they had that astonishing run of form for Luis Suarez and Daniel Sturridge that season, which contributed massively, which brings us back to another thing that we have talked about in the past, which is that perfect storm. The right manager, the right players, the right club. It's all got to come together, hasn't it? You can't necessarily judge a manager or a club against what happens in any one season. To stick with Leicester, I mean, Claude Puel looked like a terrible appointment for Leicester when they made it. You know, Southampton supporters in particular were glad to see the back of him because the football was so turgid. Yet Leicester, who had been playing this progressive attacking style, you know, that got the, that won them the title so famously, then decided to bring this this guy in. You you are allowed to make a mistake whether you're the manager going to the wrong club or the club appointing the wrong manager for you. Just, but equally with Puel, you can make the case that obviously stylistically it didn't work and the Leicester fans got sick of him as well. But Claude Puel had a good track record in, both in France and at Southampton of, bringing, of working well with young players. And maybe Leicester looked at that, and I don't know, but I tried to ask people when I wrote that piece, but maybe Leicester looked at it and thought, oh, actually, he's not, he's not a bad guy to go and get if we want to have that transition into a younger team, just he can sort of shift aside some of the older players, which he did relatively effectively, and he can sort of allow the youth to flourish. So this is all part of the plan? I'm not, I, don't think, I don't think it was part of the plan. My original plan for that piece was to write that Leicester had basically not been knocked off course of their success. Their success hadn't knocked Leicester off course because they'd always had this idea of what they wanted to be and what they actually always wanted to be was what they are now. But I don't think that's true. I think that they, they have rolled the punches quite well. But you can, you can make a case that, that Puel wasn't entirely worthless. But what it, you're, you're completely right because I think we, too, we think too quickly about who's a good and a bad manager. So Marco Silva may get sacked by Everton. Does that mean Marco Silva's a bad manager or does it mean that he's a good manager in certain contexts and this wasn't the right context for him. It, as, as Steve set up rather nicely and this email comes from Nicholas Payne Barder about Marco Silva. I'm writing to sound out a theory that I've had for some time now that the inexorable rise of Marco Silva is due less to his own prowess as a manager which four years on in English football still appears fairly unproven and more with him having a sort of resemblance to Maurizio Pochettino. There are of course trends in management style and aspirational clubs often jumping on bandwagons but Silva seems to be slightly different as his similarity to Pochettino seems to more to do with this, with an undefinable vibe than any certain management style. Both played in defence, both speak with similarly Hispanic-sounding accents, both tend to dress smartly on the pitch with a penchant for a dark suit, and both had reasonable success with slightly left-of-field European clubs before performing well for relegation-threatened sides in the Premier League. My question, though, is can football possibly be this stupid? And will Silva also have to make way at Everton whilst they look for an enthusiastic German man with glasses or a Spanish bald man with dodgy taste in cardigans, says Nicholas Payne Barder. Marco Silva is a really interesting case in point because the longest he's ever been mm. in any one job is still his first job at Estoril, who he took to the second... Yeah, I, I remember watching a lot of them. Second division title in Portugal. He then won the Cup in Portugal with Sporting and he won the league during his one season in Greece with Olympiacos. So those are his notable achievements. 
but lots of money and they are overwhelmingly the strongest team. They are the, as you've written in the past, they are the overwhelmingly dominant side in the same way that the Celtic team that Brendan, Mad- Brendan Rodgers was managing were overwhelmingly the, the strongest side in their division. Marco Silva's goal difference as a Premier League manager is minus 24. Is that right? Including the fact that he has now been with Everton longer than Hull and Watford combined. His goal difference before joining Everton in the Premier League was minus 27. So it's only improved ever so slightly. Now, I've managed to find that out quite easily. That would set alarm bells ringing for me if I was a big club with aspirations of challenging for the top six. I would be interested to know what the, what the process was that Everton undertook when, when going for silver the second time. So the, the, the flippant nature of Nicholas's email kind of suggests that oh he looks a bit like Pochettino he sounds a bit like Pochettino oh, no, that's not flipping, he, that's did, right but the underlying point is not, necess- not necessarily not necessarily that, flippant it's not necessarily that Marco Silva's getting jobs because he looks a bit like Pochettino but there's no question that football works on there is on fashions and to be honest there's nothing wrong with that does it, as soon as you start saying well they're just fashionable you're Sam Allardyce and of course there's fashions because each of those fashions has driven football forward a little bit so the Premier League's better now because of the rise of managers who want to press and it's better to have younger managers than just the same old fellas who've always had jobs and don't have any kind of distinct identity or distinct beliefs about how the game should be played football moves forward and those are fashions and so that's fine like that's not a problem i think that yeah you, you just have to look at kind of the Klopp effect that you you know Klopp comes in and does relatively well and you get david wagner who does really well at huddersfield you get daniel stendhal at, at barnsley who did did well for a while and i think was quite harshly sacked you get daniel farker at norwich obviously Sievert at Huddersfield didn't work out but you get this kind of this sudden look to Germany because that people look at it and think well actually that style of play works here so how is that a bad thing I think I think there's possibly with Portugal there's a slightly weird that's a Jose thing rather well, than yeah, but there's a this kind of assumption that we kind of the, po- the Portuguese people make good managers and I think that is that probably is a trend that maybe needs to be explored a bit, a bit more deeply. But for the clubs, they should be doing their, their due diligence on all of these people. And they should be really well aware of... I was speaking to Salzburg a couple of months ago before their first Champions League game. And they have like a list of managers who that they're low-profile people at small clubs who they're kind of thinking actually maybe that they could work late, they could work for us in two, three, five years' time when this coach goes and then the coach we're going to get to replace him goes. And Everton should be working like that, and that should there should be a degree of built-in resistance to, to to the wrong sort of fadism. But I don't have a problem with the fact that clubs look at Pochettino and think, actually, do you know what? That's the type of manager we need. That with those values and with those, with that style of play and with that kind of that aura, and maybe within football there's a there's a trend to managers themselves will look at the managers who are being successful. And they'll recognise, as we all do in all industries, that you need to look a bit like the person who's been successful because there is an association there. And that's, that's natural. I think what Nicholas is suggesting in that email is that these, any research along those lines goes only skin deep. And you're not at actually... Some, at some clubs it probably does. Yes, you don't actually consider the fit, which goes back to the point that Stephen was making about whether Marco Silva is not succeeding at this club because the fit isn't right. Well, are you just because he looks like Mauricio Pochettino and wears dark, dark shirts with his suits? 
how f- how much further than that superficial level are you actually considering the suitability which takes us back again to Brendan Rodgers who obviously considered that Leicester was exactly right for a number of reasons so his due diligence was right Leicester's due diligence for Brendan Rodgers was probably a simpler task um, but was the due diligence for Everton the same and was Marco Silva's due diligence the same to realise whether Everton was right or not? And look, that goal difference stat that I've thrown out could be utterly meaningless. It was just something that I observed and I thought that was interesting. If you were a team that was aspiring to be a big six side, that you, you might not look at that and think, oh, hang on a second, is there an area of his coaching that needs to improve before he is the right man to, to turn us into a top six club? The other thing is, is, does it not sometimes come down to blind luck? With yeah. the benefit of hindsight, we can look at these things. Is there any particular reason on paper why Nuno Espirito Santo, a Portuguese coach who has had one season coaching in the top flight of Portuguese football, succeeded at Wolves? Doesn't wear suits. Doesn't wear suits. No, true. Dark Maybe that's it. Maybe it's simply down to the track. Has a beard. Whereas, you know, Marco Silva, who's also had one season coaching in the top flight of Portuguese football, has not so far been able to have the same degree of success with that. Do you not think though that the the sil- what what the silver case study maybe does suggest, and it's 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 a tangent, is that football now moves so quickly that we're not really letting managers and players develop naturally to find the level of their ability. So you can make a case, and I'm not necessarily saying that I agree with it, but you can make a case that Marco Silva has been overpromoted, that he did well with Estoril, not a question. Estoril to Sporting is a big leap. To Sporting is a massive club with a lot of pressure. He maybe could have taken a Vittorio de Marais or one of the sort of mid-ranking Portuguese teams in between. A Braga. A Braga. A, the, it, Portuguese football is weird, though, because of the, the way the agents worked within Portuguese football. But yeah, there's, he maybe could have taken a Braga or whatever. And the, he then gets Olympiacos, which is a sideways move to Olympiacos. In fact, it's probably a, it's a way of getting Champions League experience. That's probably quite smart, going to Olympiacos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, comes to Hull, which is which is a step down in terms of size of club, but is a better lead, obviously. Goes to Watford, which makes sense, because Hull had been relegated. Watford to Everton is fine, but he'd only been there for a few months. He'd barely been there at all when they, when they first tried to get him. And maybe the thing with Marto Silva is that we haven't ever really had chance at any of those jobs to do a proper assessment of him um, so uh, those those two case studies did did we get it wrong or is it yet to be proven or were we not really that down on Brendan Rodgers and not really that up on Marco Silva do we have any sort of conclusion to reach I think the conclusion to reach on Silva is maybe that he has gone too far too quickly and the there should have been a greater sense of hmm this, there is a risk here than, than there maybe was rather than Everton have got their man I think Steve's right with Rodgers I think I think people hold Rodgers' past against him and I think there is this sense that if you've failed once then that means you are a failure forever and that's wrong. But I don't think, I don't think Rodgers doing well with Leicester is a surprise to a lot of people. I think they're two people who could be given plenty of time and we can make a judgment then. I don't think there's necessarily any reason why you would say Marco Silva doesn't deserve time at Everton to, to learn the lessons and improve the side of the game that he needs to improve because there was at one point this year, from the start of 2019 to round about the end of August, where the only team that had kept, or the only teams that had kept more clean sheets than Everton in, in the calendar year, were Liverpool and Manchester City. 
So clearly there are ways of getting it right. It's just the general trend is that Marco Silva in the Premier League, his sides concede a lot of goals. As and also that you, you have to make the point that that was when the pressure was off Everton. And there's loads yeah. of teams and loads of managers who do well, do well when the pressure's off. And they're not, the, I mean, Tony Pulis is another example. You were talking about Stoke, the Stoke job. There's talk of Pulis perhaps going back to Stoke because do you know what? He had great success there. And they punched well, well above their weight. Since he left Stoke, he's been at Palace, he's been at West Brom, he's been at Middlesbrough. And a lot of people would have thought he can do for us what he did for Stoke. And that has not quite materialised. So sometimes yeah. it's, it's, the, it's the right, the right people, the, the right fit together. Yeah. Um, well, it is now time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, What a Soccer Story. This is when Andy Hinchcliffe, before he goes to Portugal, tells us a tale from his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. Over to you, Andrew. Can I ask you guys whether you have a lot of actual interaction with people who listen to the pod? I know you get a lot. We get a lot of emails. And, my mother. Yes. Yeah, so my you, father. No, but I mean real people. That's it. They're, they're. Yeah, I don't mean them. I mean people actual on, normal people on the school run. No, no, normal people. Normal people. So you, well, you, the you people, see, the, the people I see on the school run are normal people. Chief, are what they? are you trying to say? They're parents, aren't they? So yeah. They're relatively normal, and they so they listen to. So you, you get to actually physically stand next to someone who listens to the pod. They, they only really listen for you, Chinch, but, but go on. Living where I do is such a, a posh part of the country that I, I tend to keep people at arm's length. So I don't tend to meet a lot of, are we calling them podders? Podites? What are they? People that listen to us. Call them podites. Let's normal call them people. Po- normal people. So anyway, I was at uh, Queen's Park Rangers against Brentford. Big clash in the championship. West London derby. And I'm in the tunnel clearly being adored by everybody. Was this a when live game? It was a live game, and you can clearly see why. Queen's Park Rangers against Brentford. Monday night as well, which is the big night for soccer. So I'm in the tunnel. <laughs> Everyone's clamouring to have pictures with me and, and autographs. Yeah, Two God, please, please. Mark Warburton, please give me a break, Thomas Frank. Just step back. <laughs> so anyway, this guy, young lad, young lad, comes sidling over to me and, um, and says, I listen to the pod, which kind of shook me a little bit because I, again, I haven't been around a lot of normal people who've listened to the pod. I didn't know what to expect, whether it be a handshake or a punch to the groin, because <laughs> I don't know whether he, he just said, I listen to the pod. He didn't say, I'm a big fan of the pod. He just said, I listen to the pod. Listen to the pod. What's, so what's coming, ne- what's coming next? And he was, he was lovely. He really enjoyed the pod. But the first, first thing he said was, how's Rory? And that really sums up the incredible reaction we've had from all our, our listeners about the terrible thing that Rory has been. That was the first thing, not how great I am or my contribution to the pod is, is bigger than anyone else's. It was, that, how is that Rory? And I saying. thought that was, and all we spoke about was Rory and a terrible thing about how he dealt with it and how hopefully it would all helped and what the listeners had done and their messages had got through to him. And he was really happy. I just thought it was wonderful. Again, my first interaction with a podite and it was such a, of course, a terrible situation, but a wonderfully positive. I was hoping for a bit more feedback about how great I was, but clearly we were talking about something which was more important than that. But if I, if I do another game at Queen's Park Rangers, I'm hoping to meet the same. He might, if he can email in and let me know who he was, because he had a, and those, those padded coats with the QPR, they're all club men tend to wear don't they and you don't know what job they do they all wear these big coats with the with the club crest on them but do they work for the club or are they just i don't know who these people are so again we need to find out who this young chap was he was wearing blue and white hoops no he wasn't wearing blue and white hoops it it wasn't a player clearly it was some member of the i don't know he might have been just some random who wandered off the streets with a big fluffy coat on i don't know so anyway if he can email in let me know who he is and then next time i do a queen's park rangers game he can come and tell me how great i am (laughs) 
Is he gonna maybe meet us in person? Probably meet me in person. But but can he not come to the live show? Ah, this is the point I made. I said, you know, we're doing a live pod, and he said, yes. I said, so where do you live? Are you in London? He said, yeah, yeah. Are you going to come to the live pod? No, it's a bit too far. And I said, wait a minute, we've got a guy who's coming over from Philadelphia. And he said, he must really like the pod. And then just walked away. So you're actually turning people away from the live show, Chinch? No, I was trying to encourage him to come along, but clearly he felt the 180 miles from London to, to Manchester is not a journey he was willing to make. Even when I told him that a guy is getting on a plane and flying in from Philadelphia for the show because he's going to be that great or I'm going to be that great, he just felt the pod's good. Yeah, but it's not that good. Your live pod sales pitch is making people walk away no, from No, no, he was never... Stephen, Stephen, Stephen. He was never coming. But I tried to say, by the way, this guy's coming from another country. I know London's a bit like another country, but he's coming from another country. Do you not feel a bit embarrassed that you won't get on a train or drive up to Manchester? And he just basically wasn't and just turned on his heel and, uh, and walked away from me. And that is uh, this week's soccer story from Andy Hinchcliffe. And it segues rather nicely on to me just giving you one more reminder about our live show. Well, let's you hope can you're b- get I your hope tickets. you're selling it better than Chinch does. Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I've got a whole sentence to read out. Um, our 100th episode taking place next week as part of the Manchester Podcast Festival. Head to their website to get your ticket. In the meantime, please continue to send in any soccer stories that you may have to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. If you have a Reacher novel, um, maybe the new Reacher novel, uh, please open it, take a photo, send it to us really is all it takes we have some they are ready to go when Chinch returns from his latest mini sabbatical please subscribe share rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule a thank you to Roy to Stephen and to you all for listening we'll be back with another set piece many for you to enjoy very soon indeed bit production heavy this week aren't we two things on tape two things on tape a lot of swearing a lot of swearing it's very much an X rated maybe 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 this podcast is going to change Maybe we're it's going to become a bit e, more explicit. The explicit. We're going to have to fill in a form for I that. Think, I mean, I think our, our, our audience numbers are plateauing, although obviously we have in, in recent weeks in the quality of those people. Yes. Is extraordinarily high. Maybe we need to attract but, more with well, no, a couple but of we're not, we're not. We're not going to lose them by swearing. They probably like it. Well, you were, you were saying earlier, you know, people, you know, within football, you know, people, English in particular, are switched off by pretension. Are we yeah. falling foul of that? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Do we need to That's lower the brow? We do need to... I think if you looked at the, the podcasts that have more listeners than us, they are all very lowbrow. Leave the swearing in. Leave the swearing in. Add a soupçon savage and some shouty talk sport callers. Boom. That's the recipe.